All right, well, please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Moving right along through the book of Genesis. We'll go ahead and jump right on in and read verses 1 and 2 here. Now it came to pass, came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So, in verse 1 there, God calls and Abraham answers. But this is a test, okay? God's not calling on Abraham this time to tell him to pack up and move again. He's not calling on Abraham to promise him another child or anything like that, or promise him anything for that matter. He's calling on Abraham to test him here. And that word tested there in verse 1 is the Hebrew word nasa, and it means to prove, okay, to try or to prove. And in verse 2, we see the description of exactly what God is going to do in order to test Abraham. God is telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son. But you say, wait a minute, Isaac is not the only son of Abraham. What about Ishmael? Well, remember, when it comes to this relationship that God has established between him and Abraham, and when it comes to this plan that God has, there was only one child of promise. There was to only be one child that God was going to give to both Abraham and Sarah. And that is the child Isaac. It is from Isaac that the chosen people would come. It is from Isaac that the line of the Messiah would come, right? Jesus, that is. So God is not going to allow for Isaac to be sacrificed. That's not his purpose here in the life of Abraham. The purpose of what we are reading about here in the life of Abraham is so that God can try Abraham or test Abraham, prove Abraham's faith in God. And initially, as we read this, to our minds, this can seem absolutely crazy. If you put yourself in Abraham's sandals, you may be thinking, are you kidding me, Lord? All of these years I've waited for what you have promised, and this is what you really want me to do? You give me the child of promise who in your eyes, God is the only child of promise, and then you want me to sacrifice this child? Really, God? Now, before we move on, though, in this story here, we'd be remiss if we did not mention something here as it pertains to God, right, to an only child of promise here, because we know as we fast forward in time from this point in the Bible here, we know that God himself had an only child, don't we? We know his only begotten son was Jesus Christ. And 
He was the ultimate, the final child of promise, wasn't he? And God so loved the world that he gave this child, his only begotten son, to the world. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. That's what Isaiah 9, 6 tells us. And the Son of God walked upon this earth, and the Son of God would be sacrificed upon this earth. To the world, the Son of God was murdered, crucified as an innocent man. But to God the Father, He allowed His only begotten Son to be sacrificed for the benefit of you and me, that our sins may be forgiven. And there is no greater love than this. And all the world must come to know and understand this love of God. For in this love is contained our salvation. And we also see, though, there in verse 2, that Abraham loved Isaac. And we know from Matthew 3.17 that God proclaimed from heaven in regards to Jesus, he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God loved his son, Jesus, but was still willing to sacrifice him for all the world. And God, in this great love of his, willingly followed through with that sacrifice of his only begotten son. And I've mentioned this in teachings past, but here in verse 2 is the first time that love is ever mentioned in the Bible. But the story continues here in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So do you see the faith of Abraham here? He's going through with it. He heard from God. And he then took the steps of obedience to do what God had commanded him to do. We know that God was testing him. We know that. But Abraham didn't know that here. But you know, the scripture does tell us what Abraham did know. Abraham had come to a conclusion about something in regards to this whole thing here. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 11 what conclusion that Abraham had come to here. Mark this page in your Bibles and go ahead and turn there to Hebrews chapter 11. Again, as always, we're going to allow scripture, scripture to interpret scripture, scripture to enhance other scripture. So we can get an idea here that we don't get from Genesis 22 of what Abraham was thinking. Abraham had come to a conclusion in the midst of all of this. And in Hebrews chapter 11, looking down at verse 17, we're told, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Um, called. So pause right there, because it's being stressed here in these verses in Hebrews that this is the child of promise that Abraham is being asked to sacrifice. 
This was to be the lineage that God had promised Abraham, and it was going to be through Isaac, so it would make no logical sense to Abraham that he would sacrifice this child. But you know what? Abraham's faith was even greater than what we think it was because he, in his heart, he had come to a conclusion about what God's telling him to do here. And verse 19 tells us what conclusion Abraham came to it said, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So Abraham's conclusion was that God gave him Isaac in a miraculous way. In other words, Abraham saying, my body was dead. I couldn't have a child. My wife's body was dead. We couldn't have children. So this is how God gave him to me anyway. So Abraham concluded that God could raise him from the dead. So so this faith of Abraham's was much like what we read about in the life of Job. And I won't take you there this morning. But in the book of Job, chapter 1, Job had literally lost everything but his wife and his life. But he lost everything else. Everything he had worked for was gone, and so was all of his children. It was an extremely tragic time in the life of Job, but Job made a statement in which Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job understood that God was God. God is above all. He made all. And it all belongs to Him, including our very lives. Abraham understood this as well. He knew that this child was from God anyway. And this child belonged to God. God's will was going to be done in the life of this child. And the actions of Abraham, the faith of Abraham, proved that he believed that. And that he knew that. And we'll see that Abraham would, of course, pass this test, would fly in colors. And another important note for us this morning is that Jesus, the Son of God, would be tried, He would be tested, and He would be proved, and He would be raised victorious. And we'll tie that all through as we go through this, right? The story of Jesus along with this. So as we flip back to Genesis chapter 22 now, Genesis chapter 22 again, and we pick it up in verse 4. It says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. So Abraham now sees the place where God wants him to sacrifice his son. He now knows that's the place. In verse 5, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go up yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Okay, so do you see what Abraham says there? Do you see what he's telling the young men that came with him on this trip here? He's telling them, Me and Isaac are going up that mountain, and me and Isaac are coming back down that Why did he say that? Well, because we know that he had concluded that if necessary, God would raise Isaac from the dead. 
This, again, was the child of promise. And God was not going to fail in regards to the fact that the seed of Abraham would come from Isaac, that lineage. Abraham was going to have grandchildren from Isaac. Isaac would be back down that mountain. Abraham would not come down that mountain alone. Jesus, our Savior, he walked up a hill. He would die on that hill. But he would walk again on the land beneath that hill because God had a plan and a purpose for him. From Jesus would also come many sons and many daughters, of which you and I are just a few. We are sons and daughters of faith in God because of Jesus. But the story continues here in verse 6. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. So again, Abraham is going through this with Isaac, right? Isaac, though, would carry the wood for his own sacrifice, and Abraham would do the killing. Isaac didn't walk that hill alone. Abraham was with him. Jesus didn't walk that hill alone. The Father was with him. But Jesus would carry the wood of his own sacrifice, the cross on which he was crucified. Verse 7, But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac didn't know what was going on here, did he? He was just a young man. He didn't know what Abraham was doing here. On the other hand, though, Jesus was a son of God, but also God in the flesh. And he knew that one day he would walk that hill. And he told his disciples that he would one day die in that way. Jesus knew that he was God's provision for the sacrifice. It was Jesus that would take away the sin of the world. Isaac didn't know that he was to be sacrificed in this situation. So in verse 8, Abraham tells Isaac, and Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. So that's the second time there that we see the two of them went together. The father was with the son, as it was the father with the son Jesus. But we also can learn a lot from verse 8 here. You see, Abraham said that God would provide a lamb for a burnt offering. This is Abraham assuring Isaac that everything is going to be okay, son. Don't worry about it. God will come through. But keep this in mind for a moment, what we're talking about here, because I'm going to touch on this again. Abraham tells Isaac that God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. I'll come back to that. But let's move on to verse 9. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order, and he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. So Isaac 
is a strong young man here. Strong enough, first of all, to carry the wood up that hill. And strong enough to resist his father Abraham here if he wanted to. He's strong enough to resist what he's doing. But we get no indication from Scripture that he resisted Abraham here. So there was, seemed to be no struggle while Abraham bounds Isaac here. So did Isaac just willingly submit? Again, we're not told exactly, but what we do know as we look at these similarities of this story and the story of Jesus Christ, we do know that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, did willfully submit to the crucifixion. He did not resist. He knew that it was the reason that he had came to the earth, and he knew that it must be as it was. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed to the Father that if it would be possible that this cup would pass from him to let it be so, but this we know was not the case. But Jesus did not resist the will of the Father. And my inclination here is to believe that Isaac did not resist the will of his father Abraham either. But that's not given to us in Scripture, but it's just my inclination. So the time has come now. And verse 10 says, And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this was the real deal here. Abraham was going to do it. And he had passed the test, the test of his faith in God. And as we look at this story here this morning, I can't help but ask all of us here, what about you? What about me? How strong, how deep is our faith in God? You see, he's not asking us to sacrifice anything physically like we see happening here because the days of physical sacrifice ended with the cross of Christ. Jesus took our place in that. But we are instructed today to walk by faith. Are we not? Again, God's not asking us to shed blood, but he simply wants us to be followers of Jesus, to walk in the way that Jesus walked on this earth, to trust in the way that Jesus trusted, to love in the way that Jesus loved, to shun this, world way, this world's ways in the way that Jesus shunned this world's ways, to die to ourselves, to take up the cross, and to follow after Him. To have the love of the Father in us and working through us. That's a test of our faith. Are we living in this way? In the New Testament book of 1 John, I won't have you turn there, but we're told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust 
of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So it's very clear that God doesn't want our eyes on the world. He wants our eyes on him and to do his will. We are called to walk by faith through this life, faith in the will of God, and to not walk in the love of this world. This is what is required of us. Abraham was willing to physically sacrifice the son that he loved, the son that he had waited long and patiently for, the child of promise. But for you and me, God the Father, our Creator, the everlasting God, became flesh in the form of His Son. And all that He wants from us is for us to walk by faith in Him. So I present a challenge to us all this morning. Read 2 Corinthians 13.5 this week, today, sometime, and meditate on it. I'll tell you what it says. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? You see, God tested and God proved Abraham. And God calls us to test ourselves. In other words, take a deep look at our faith and how we are living this life as followers of Christ. Are you in the world walking by sight? Or are we not of the world walking by faith? Does this world and its ways appeal to you? Are you loving the things in this world? Or are you not of this world and loving God and the things of His Word? There is no middle ground, you see. There's there's no room for gray. No place given for straddling the fence. God tested and tried Abraham and it's written for our learning. And it is an example to us of how we are to look at our faith in God. Take time to study the scriptures where Jesus spoke about what it takes to be his disciples. If you do a study on that, what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus. Right? You see, today, the body of Christ in many ways, in many places, has mistakenly fallen into thinking that the Lord just simply wants you to profess Jesus as your Savior, and that's all there is to it. You can just go live however you want after you do that. But Jesus doesn't want half-hearted followers. He never says that. He's looking for disciples, those that will forsake all, surrender all, leave all, and follow Him, right, as Lord. And in this story of Abraham, we see just how committed to God this man Abraham really was. And God approves of Abraham's faith. And he intervenes here. And then in verse 13, it says, Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, earlier, as we looked at verse 8, I asked you to keep in mind where Abraham told his son that God would provide a lamb for a burnt offering. Now, as it pertains to Jesus... We, of course, know that Scripture tells us that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. 
So Jesus indeed was compared to a lamb that was sacrificed for the sin of the world. But here, God did not provide a lamb as Abraham had told Isaac, but instead God provided a ram. And these are two different Hebrew words. Okay, The Hebrew word that Abraham used for lamb is the word say, but the word for ram here in verse 13 is the word ayil. These are two different animals. It will be a ram that will be burnt upon this altar that Abraham and Isaac have built here. You see, there was no human being sacrificed here on the mountain of Moriah where Abraham and Isaac went up. This story that we read about, though it points us to salvation, it's not about salvation. It's really about the testing of Abraham's faith. But in a sense, back there in verse 8, where Abraham said to Isaac, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. It is true that God ultimately provided himself a sacrifice, didn't he? God himself became flesh. He was one of us. But of course, he walked this earth in a sinless life. And he went to the cross to sacrifice himself for the sin of the world. He himself was the sacrifice. But again, what we see here in this story is the testing of Abraham, not the salvation of the world. But Abraham, by faith, did what he did here on the mountain of Moriah. And we, by faith, look to what was done on Calvary, where Jesus was sacrificed as the Lamb of God. So again, here in this story, it was a ram and not a lamb. And verse 14 continues and says, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So again, we fast forward in time to you and me today. As we read this verse here, the Lord has provided for me and for you. He has atoned. That is, is that he has taken our sin upon himself. He bore the wood upon his back and he ascended up the holy mount. He has provided the way for heaven to you and me. We come to him by faith. Salvation is offered by grace and received by faith. You see, today it seems also as if so much of Christianity believes that it's just was grace alone. That's all it was, it was grace alone. But grace is the offer of salvation. In other words, from God's heart, He said, you don't have to do anything. Here is salvation. We don't deserve salvation, but God offered salvation by grace. But salvation is received by faith. You see, the whole world is not saved because of God's grace. Right? God didn't just say, okay, all your sin is covered. You don't have to worry about anything anymore. You're saved just because I give it to you, all the world. You're all saved just because I give it to you. This is not the case. 
Salvation is received by faith. And that faith does require an action. And that action, that action is what? Repentance. We must turn from the world. We must turn from living in that way and turn to the living God. Okay? You must turn from the love of the world. We must turn from walking in the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And we must become a disciple of Jesus. You can't just continue in the, in the lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and say, oh, I'm saved by grace. No. It's through faith. Let, let me be very clear here, though, on what you're hearing me say this morning. And that is, is that we've done nothing worthy of salvation. I have done nothing worthy of salvation. No one in this world has done anything worthy of salvation. God, in His grace, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But what is our part in it? We must believe in Him. And then we will not perish and have everlasting life. That's what the Scripture says. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That's grace. That whomsoever believes on Him, that's faith, that's our part. We come to Him by faith, then we will not perish, we'll have everlasting life. Our belief in Him is represented in the fact that we have repented. We have turned from living in sin, willful sin, and we continue by faith to walk in Him, shunning the world and loving Him above all else. Okay, faith is displayed in works. Okay, I'll say it again. Faith displayed in works. That's the evidence of a person's salvation. A tree is known by their fruit. Okay, a person no longer walks in the way that they once walked without Jesus when they come to Jesus because they've been born again. So, but faith indeed is tested by God as we see in the life of Abraham here. And our faith will be tested because James tells us, count it all joy when you, when you suffer various trials and tribulation, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that it's the testing of your faith. But that testing of your faith produces something, James says. He says it produces perseverance. We keep going. We keep growing in the Lord. We don't become stagnant. We don't become complacent just sitting around in Christ, oh, I'm saved by grace. I went back to doing everything I used to do, but I'm saved by grace, right? Faith gets tested, and faith is to grow, and we are to become stronger in our faith, constantly more and more challenged in the Lord, like we've seen in the life of Abraham. Now, I think it's important that I expound more on what I'm saying here. So please mark this page and turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book, of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, and let's start reading in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, so pause right there. Do you see in verse 5 that we are kept by the power of God through faith? You see, faith has the power of God in it. We walk by faith in Jesus Christ each and every day, and we belong to God. We have not been actually saved yet. The salvation will be revealed at the last time, as it says here, but we are now kept for this salvation through faith. So we therefore must continue in the faith. Hebrews 3.14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast till the end. Let me read that again. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast till the end. So when you first come to Christ and you place all your trust in Him and it's all about Jesus and your eyes have been opened to something new and you're surrendered to Him and it's all about Him and you're enamored with Him, we keep that. We keep walking just like that all the way till the end. Okay? But let's read on here, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That's this world, isn't it? Jesus said in this world you'll have tribulation. And from time to time we'll be grieved by various trials. Verse 7, though, says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, what I'm pointing out to you here is that just as we've seen with Abraham, our faith is tested and we are encouraged to grow. So are you going to stay the course? Are you going to persevere all the way till the end? Or is the love of this world going to turn you away from that faith? And that happens to many people. Abraham, we're told, loved Isaac. But he was going to follow through by faith, knowing that God was God. Surrendered completely to God. Knowing that God would raise Isaac from the dead. That's how committed a life that Abraham had to God. We're not asked to do that. We're not asked to do that kind of thing today. We're, we're asked to just follow the Lord, to walk by faith, to trust in Him with every aspect of your life, right? Verse 8 here says, whom, speaking of Jesus, right? Whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see Him, yet believing, you rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory, with joy, I'm sorry, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, we stay the course of faith all the way till the end. We love Jesus more than the world. That's why we stay the course of faith, right? More than we love our family, more than we love life itself, we are absolutely and totally surrendered to Him because we know that He is Lord of all 
and it all belongs to him anyway. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So every aspect of our lives is to be submitted under his control. Our marriages, our child rearing, our jobs, our finances, they're all his. And we are simply stewards of what he allows us to have in this life. And Abraham lived that kind of life. Even a child given to him at an old age of promise, he was willing to give up. And that's what faith is. And again, that faith will be tested. It will be tried. So take the time to examine your faith, as I challenged you earlier from 2 Corinthians 13, 5. And as we flip back now to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22 Continuing on in verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I will bless you and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So you see, this is what Abraham is an example to us of. Obedience to the voice of God. No matter how hard something may be for you to receive mentally or how it makes you feel to receive it emotionally, God is God and his word is truth. He is above all and we are to walk in obedience to him no matter if all the world around us is telling us something opposite about life. Right Today in our world, they will pull on your heartstrings. They will play with your emotions just to try and get you to a place where you accept something contrary to God's word, where you accept sin. Right? Because the world today is spitting in the face of the voice of God. Because his word says one thing and the world says another thing. But as Abraham was, we are blessed only when we obediently submit to the voice of God. That's what we see in those verses. Abraham was blessed because he obeyed the voice of God. And some may say, where is the voice of God today? Well, it's right here in his holy word, the Bible. Okay, He spoke and it is written. And that's what we are to stand upon. And as we stand upon the word of God, we too will be obeying the voice of God. We too will then be blessed as a result. But it's a challenge. It's a test. It's hard. It's not easy to stand upon the word of God today when all the world around you does not. And all of our laws are changing and everything's happening that's contrary to the word of God. But we have to be proved in our faith and stand strong, right? So Abraham, verse 19, so Abraham returned to his young men and they rose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So verse 19 here brings the testing of Abraham's faith to a close. But these next five verses, which we'll get through kind of quickly here, 
But they're kind of interesting, though, as you read them. It seems almost as you read them like, oh, where did we just go in Scripture? We just ended this story here, and, and where did this just go? But let's read them. Now it came to pass, verse 20, after these things, that it was told Abraham, saying, Indeed, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Huz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kemuel the father of Aram, Chest, Hasel, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. And Bethuel begot Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. His concubine, whose name was Rumah, also bore Teba, Gahem, Thahash, and Makah. Now, I said that those five verses were interesting. Very hard to read, but interesting nonetheless. But it's kind of interesting to me, what I pick up in this, that Abraham was going to be the father of many nations, but he's only got two sons, right? But here, his brother Nahor has lots and lots of children, right? Again, God works in curious ways, doesn't he? And Abraham could be looking at his brother and saying, wow, I've got two children. I'm going to be the father of many nations. Maybe he's going to be the father of many nations. Maybe it's not me, right? But don't we do this sometimes in life? Don't we look at what others have and, and think that we lack somehow or we're falling short sometimes? But God's not promised anything to Nahor, has he? It's Abraham that God is working through here, isn't it? God doesn't need what man offers to accomplish his will, does he? God works in the power of his might, and he just wants us to be in submission to him. And that's what we see with Abraham. He's a man submitted to God, committed to God by faith, and God's working in his life. But what we also see there in these verses, the birth of Rebekah in verse 23 so in that, we see great significance because Rebekah will grow up to be the wife of Isaac. So God's introducing us to Rebekah here. So God, though, is continuing in his faithfulness. His promises will be fulfilled. And we are continuing to see that unfold in the pages of our Bibles here. But we're also continually seeing it unfold in our lives around us as well. God's promises will be fulfilled. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our absolute surrender. He's worthy of us trusting in him completely. And that's what he wants. He wants us to hear his word, obey his word, and live in accordance with his word. And again, to shun this world and to walk away from it and to trust God above all else. And he always comes through. He always comes through. And he is God and he knows all and he sees all. And we can trust in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your holy word, God. Your word that challenges us, it corrects us, it rebukes us at times if necessary. Your word is what keeps us on paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Lord, where would we be without your word? I think of 
the Apostle Peter, when you asked him, Jesus, you said, will you too turn away from me? In the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 6, verse 66, where many people turned away from you, Lord, and you asked your disciples, will you too turn away? And Peter said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And it's the same for us, Lord. Where else can we go? There is no other way. There is no other hope for us. You are our peace. You are our joy. But oftentimes, Lord, we get distracted by this world. And our eyes get turned off of you in one way, shape, or form. And not even knowing it, we get turned on to the things of this world. But Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here and those that will listen to this, Lord, that that you will draw us, Lord, back to that place of our first love, our first confidence, as we read about today, that we will hold fast that first confidence all the way till the end, that we will continue to walk by faith through this life and not by sight. Lord, may we not be a people that has a form of godliness and denies the power thereof, but may we walk in godliness, seeking you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for your word and what you teach us in your word. We thank you for your spirit who really is the teacher, Lord. My, wall, my words fall short, and I pray that everyone listening, Lord, will study your word for themselves to see whether what I've said is right at all, Lord, because I fall short. But Lord, your word is firm. It's a firm foundation, and it's what we build our lives upon. So we thank you for it again. We thank you for this day. We pray that as we go forward into a new week, your will would be done in our lives and that you would be the strength of our lives. And we pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.